right, we are in the book of Colossians, going steadily through. We're going to be in Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 through 23 this morning. So what does it mean for us to sing that Christ is the firstborn of all creation? What does it mean to sing that Christ is the firstborn from the dead? That He is the head, that He's the creator of all. We want to read Colossians this morning. And we're, we're going to read from one, 13 all the way through 23. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created that are in heaven, that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, principalities or powers, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things consist. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he is reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. If indeed you continue in the faith grounded and steadfast and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to you to every creature under heaven of which I, Paul, became a minister. You know, songs of worship and praise, some are upbeat, some are slow. This morning we had kind of a slower time of worship than normal, and uh, but sometimes we'll go a little bit more upbeat. But there's songs sometimes about God. We sing some songs sometimes to God. Sometimes we sing songs of exhortation to one another about God or to praise God. They're all different forms, but one thing is that all the songs we sing should be doctrinal. They should be theologically correct. Um, this morning, part of the passage that we're reading is actually a song, starting in verse 15 through 20. The, the scholars, most of them believe that that was probably actually a hymn that, that Paul was, was referring to and referencing and talking about, but, uh, verses 15 through 20. Uh, a beautiful theological hymn that talks about who Jesus is who God is. And so as we just read that passage, we're going to talk a little bit about verses 13 all the way through 23, but I'm going to start at verse 15 and go to the end and then come back to 13 and 14 at the end. Let's prepare our hearts to learn from the Word this morning. God, bless the time in the Word. Open our hearts and our mind. Lord, I pray that you would help my, my speaking be clear that we be encouraged and strengthened through your word, in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, this, these verses, they're, it's like an anthem, and it's such a glorious anthem that we want to study. The substance of the spiritual song points to Paul being the author, and we've talked about that in the book of Colossians. And maybe he took an older hymn and reworked it to glorify Christ, 
but it proclaims Christ the firstborn and what that fact means. A lot of early hymns were creeds, kind of like creeds, and they were based, they were poetic. And of course, the Bible was, the New Testament was written in Greek, so sometimes we don't see it as well. Also, not understanding the culture and the poetry at the time, we miss out on a lot of these um, things unless we go to our commentaries and, and find out what it was that the, the author was trying to get it get at to us. But these songs, and we have a lot of songs today. In fact, today in Christianity, we're inundated with Christian songs. And a lot of people call them worship songs, and I disagree. There's just a lot of Christian songs. Out, but, but we're even inundated with what worship songs would be. And, and you can tell the spiritual temperature of people and what's going on by looking at the lyrics of these Christian songs, these Christian worship songs. And there's a lot of, some of them are, are, are better than others. Some have, you know, better music maybe than others. But we look at the lyrical content to find out what's happening in the heart of, of the people. One of the things that sadly we do find is that a lot of people have weak theology. A lot of the authors of these songs, the theology is a little off. It's not real strong. Um, sometimes it leans too, too heavy on the side of emotionalism and not as strong on, on the word. But what really gets difficult is when the theology is, is bad. But this morning we're talking about this section. And we're going to talk about six, believe it or not. We're going to go fast. We're talking about six parts of this passage that Paul is showing us of the life of Christ and who he is. And I think they're just amazing truths of who Christ is as the firstborn as the head of the church. We're going to talk about all these. So starting in verse 15, in this great hymn, it says, He is the image of the invisible God. We're going to stop right there because we have, have two, two points in the first passage, in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. This might seem like a strange passage, really, because you say He's the image of the invisible visible God or he's the reflection of the invisible God. If I were to take a mirror and hold up an invisible image in front of it, the reflection would be invisible. And so we go, well, how is Christ the, the image of the invisible God? Because his essence, Christ's life shows the essence of God. It's not, the, it, it's not his invisible image that we're seeing but what we're seeing is the essence of God. And Christ, as he lived his life on this earth, he reflected God's essence in its fullness. And this, this uh, section here, it's kind of contrasting Genesis 1.27, where God says, let's make man in our own image. And so God created us in his image, and now we're in Colossians and says that Christ is the image of God. What happened? Well, what happened along the way is we fell into sin. God created us in the image of himself. But as we lived our life, we gave in to sin. And so now we as people, we bear the image of fallen man. We bear the image of the serpent, of the devil, outside of Christ. Christ, when he walked on this earth, was never subject to living in the fallen nature of man. He was born sinless. We were born sinful. He walked on the earth and he never sinned. 
I haven't gotten through a day, probably an hour, without sinning. So Christ then took that essence where, where God desired it to us, for us to walk in that, but we fell. And so thousands of years later, Christ comes on the scene and he becomes the image of God, the image of what he wanted us to be. God made man in his own image. We fell into sin. So now Christ becomes that image of God for us. So we can look at the life and the character of Jesus and we see the, nest, the nature and the essence of God through him. And that is powerful. Psalm 51 said, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in, my, in sin my mother conceived me. So the nature of Christ reflects the essence of God because Christ is God. Christ is God. And so his, his nature reflects the essence of God. I want to read a couple of scriptures here. Verse 19, it says, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness of God to dwell in him. Colossians 2.9, For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. So Christ is the visible image of the invisible God in the respect that in Christ Jesus, all the deity rests, dwells in bodily form in the person of Jesus. So the hymn starts out expressing one of the most amazing and beautiful facts of the universe, that Christ was 100% God and 100% man. He is the image of the invisible God. Let's go on to the second part of that verse. It says, He is the firstborn over all creation. So what does Paul mean by the being the firstborn of all creation? We just found that, that Jesus is the image of God, that all the, God, all the qualities of God dwells in the body of Jesus. Jesus is God. And yet then it says that He's the firstborn. So if He was born, does that not make Him God anymore? And some cults use this scripture actually to prove that Jesus was not deity. But that's not what he's saying here. The idea of firstborn is a principle that, that we're going to see in the, in the Bible. That there's a principle of being the firstborn. What does it mean to be God's firstborn son over all creation? We want to understand this as we sing this new anthem, this new song. Adam was the first created man. But Christ was the firstborn of all creation. He actually created Adam. Right? Christ is God. He created Adam. The term firstborn in the Greek is, is just the simple common word of meaning the firstborn. Mary used it. In, in Luke chapter 2, it says, And she, Mary, gave birth to her firstborn son. She gave birth to other children later on. But there was something miraculous about that birth. But in the culture of the Bible times, and still in most cultures today, we don't see it as much in ours. Firstborn means the firstborn son is honored to be the special heir of the inheritance. In Bible times, the firstborn son would get a double portion of all of the land and all the treasures. You know, it's a double portion. If there was four kids, 
this one would get two portions, so you divide it by five, and the oldest, the firstborn, would get two portions, and everyone else would just get one. So there was this part about being firstborn that was the heir. They were the one who would take over. They would be the, the one who would take over in, in dad's footsteps. So what happened here? Let's, let's look at some, some elements of being firstborn. We think of Esau and Jacob. Esau and Jacob were born as twins. Esau was the firstborn son, and Jacob was not. And boy, Jacob, Jacob means deceiver. He didn't have a great line starting out. And we see him always trying to usurp his brother. And his mom was helping him do it. You remember the story? He went in to get a blessing from his father. And he had to pretend he was Esau. So he puts the, the animal hair on to make him hairy because Esau was hairy. And, and his mom cooks the stew and, and, and tricks dad. And so he brought him close. He, he, was, he wasn't quite sure. He says, the voice sounds like Jacob. But and he touched him. It was Esau. And he smelt him. And it was Esau's smell. And so he gave the blessing of the firstborn. I'll use my right hand because that's the blessing hand. He gave the firstborn blessing to Jacob. Jacob wasn't the firstborn, yet he inherited the blessing. He was the firstborn. Later on, Jacob does the same thing to Joseph. It's kind of interesting. When Jacob is now the grandpa and he brings Joseph's two kids, Ephraim and Manasseh, to bless them. Manasseh was the firstborn. Ephraim was the second. And Joseph brings the two kids and he puts, he puts Manasseh on the right hand of Jacob and, and Ephraim on the, on the left hand because the right hand is the, the double portion blessing. That's where you would bless the oldest. And what did Jacob do? You know, he crosses his hands. And Jacob's, and Joseph's mad because he knows that Manasseh should be receiving the firstborn blessing. And Jacob says no. So Ephraim then becomes the firstborn, though he wasn't. There's a, there's a principle of being firstborn, of being the heir, and being the one who would carry on. Genesis 48, he, Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on Ephraim's head. It displeased him, and he grabbed his father's hand to remove it. From Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head, and Joseph said to his father, Not so, my father. For this from Ephraim is the firstborn. Place your right hand on his head. But his father refused. There's something about the firstborn that was so special, yet it didn't necessarily matter who was the firstborn. Wherever the firstborn blessing came, see, it's a principle. So Jesus, in this passage, he is the firstborn of all creation. He was not physically born, but he is the heir of everything. He stands with all the power. He stands as God's firstborn over all creation. It's, a, it's not a, a, a symbol of being born, but a symbol that he is heir apparent of everything. King David was called God's firstborn in Psalm 89, which is also a prophetic pointing to Jesus. It says, I also shall make him my firstborn, the highest kings of the earth. It was talking about King David. 
but later would be applied to Jesus, who would be the highest of the kings of the earth. In what sense is David's God's firstborn? Part of God's plan. The prophetic depth to this, it shouldn't surprise us. Paul is talking about it here in Colossians. The messianic psalm that points to the fulfillment in Jesus who would inherit the throne of his father David. You know, there was a lot of children from the, fam from the line of David. There was, there was a lot. You had to come from the line of David to become king. And Jesus was in that line, but he came the firstborn. He received the inheritance. He walked as the heir. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. The, first, the reference of firstborn for Christ expresses his status as the firstborn heir, the Son of God, the King of kings, and the Lord of lords. So already in this hymn, we see that, that Christ is 100% God, and he's 100% man, that he was the image, the essence of God in bodily form on the earth, and that he is the firstborn over all creation. He is the absolute heir and has all the power. Verse 16, for by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. This third part of, of our six this morning talks about Christ's preeminent majesty. The word all here is, is panta, it's everything. It says, by him all things were created. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. We're going on further into the deity of Christ. By him all things were created. And maybe we'll just stop there, most of us, and say, this is one of the, the scriptures that proves that Jesus is God. And it's part of the Trinity scriptures. It says, how could God have created everything if Colossians says that Jesus did? And we might stop there. But it goes deeper than that. Something that's important for us to understand that Christ created all things, dominions, rulers, authorities. These things are talking mostly of spiritual powers, whether heavenly or demonic. Christ created all dominion, all powers, whether heavenly or demonic. He didn't create them demonic, but he created them. The demonic realm came from, from when Satan fell and they rebelled against God. But who created Satan in the beginning? Christ and God. We're not, we're not separating, we're talking, we're focusing on the deity of Christ. So what does that mean? If he created the thrones, the dominions, the rulers and authorities, he is ahead. He is the head of all of their power. He's ahead of the jurisdiction that they have. And that goes back to verse 13. We're, we're going to go there in a few minutes, but we're not yet. In, the, in, this, in here, in this verse, sometimes the translation is domain of darkness. The word is exousia. 
exousia. It says, All things were created that are in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, principalities, powers. All things were created. Power, the word there is authority. That he created all authorities. So that means that, that in the spiritual realm and then in the natural realm, Christ created the authority of these realms. And that means he is above them. We don't have to be afraid of the kingdom of darkness. The kingdom of darkness does not have authority over Christ. Christ created. He has authority over the powers, over the dominions. We need to bring that also for us today because we're living in a time in this nation that we're seeing a government that started out God-fearing change in front of us. And a lot of us are nervous and wondering what's going to happen. There is not a government, the Bible says, Romans 16, I believe, that is in place that God did not establish. No. Why He allows certain governments to rise up, I'm not sure. But we, in Christ don't have to be afraid of that system. We don't have to be paranoid. Christ created all authorities, all dominions, all powers. There's a lot of people who who worship other systems, other spiritual systems. They're just worshiping false gods. Christ is above all. There is no other God. There is nothing equal to Jesus and his authority. 1 Corinthians 10 says, I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. Anytime people bow and worship any other system, whether it's pantheism or animism or, or Mother Nature, Mother Earth, government, they're worshiping demons. God created all of these things. Jesus created these kingdoms and dominions, and he has dominion over them. The point is that whatever spirit entity we're talking about, Christ created it. We won't understand why fully why everything has gone the way it is until we get to heaven. But Christ created is over all principalities and power. And that He has a purpose for all of it. He is superior to it all. I don't know about you, I don't always feel that way. I always feel that Jesus is superior to some of the attacks that are coming against me. But we can rest assured that he is. It's by faith we walk, not by sight. Ephesians 1 says, You were in the past, you were dead in trespasses and sin, which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. You know, the Colossians and the Ephesians both were struggling. They had all kinds of these pagan traditions ingrained right in their cultures. And these, these thoughts, these, these traditions would ruthlessly influence their thoughts. And so Paul is repeating this, and he'll repeat it again in the next chapter about these mystical spiritual beings and Christ's relationship to him. He is above all things. I'm going to read a few scriptures here. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete. He is the head over all rule and authority. Verse 15, when he, 
God had disarmed in the past the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through Christ. Verse 18 in Colossians 2. Let no one keep defrauding you of, of your prize, but delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels. See, these things were all, Christ is above all of these things. All thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities that exist were created by and for Christ. And he will use them and he will cause the things to work. Even physical governments that seem evil and dark. The pagans of Rome in the Roman times, the governments of our day. Though the people who operate them are sons of disobedience, God, Christ, created them for himself. All governments are ordained by God. It's Romans 13. I even thinking here, Pilate, what did Jesus say to Pilate? John 19, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. And if, you, if there's a time that Jesus seemed out of control, was on Passion Week when he was being whipped and hammered to the cross. He says, you have no power except that which is given to you, that he gave to you. Verse 17, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is before all things. Before is just a description of time. So when Paul says that Christ is before all things, the song keeps playing. For Colossians 1, 15 through 20, he is not a created being. He existed before anything he created. He's the sovereign God. He's eternal God. But he holds everything together that he created. When I, whenever I go to this passage, I think about, about learning about atoms, the protons and the neutrons. And still today, they're trying to figure out why all these things just don't burst apart. What holds these protons and neutrons spinning so radically, violently in this little tiny molecule? In fact, science would even say that they should be propelling each other because of their positive and negative forces and positive and positive, and yet they stay bonded together. And I just go to the scriptures here that say, Christ holds all things together. You know, we, it just comes down to everything here is set up, and Christ created all of the rules of gravity, and he creates all of these things, and he himself is holding it together. All things were held together by Christ, whether at the atomic level or at the spiritual level, including the entities and governments of the spiritual realm. Jesus Christ holds the protons that he made for himself together. And he holds and binds Satan and the angels and their governing forces together. He is in control of it all. Long time ago, somebody helped me to understand. If I were to give you lists of opposites, which we'll just do real quick, what's the opposite of good? What's the opposite of hot? What's the opposite of God? Most of us say Satan. You know what? Satan is not the opposite of God. Satan's a created being. God created him. The opposite of Satan might be Michael or Gabriel. God has no opposite. 
God created it. He is not an equal but opposite force from God. He's an equal but opposite force of one of the other created angels. We need to keep that in perspective. The enemy, is God is not up there wrestling with the devil going, who's going to win this match? He created him. And it's beyond me why, why he hasn't just taken him out now. We, we, see, we, we see in the scripture there's a plan. I wish he'd do it my way. Because I think I know so much more than God. But in his sovereignty, in his will, in his mercy, he, he hasn't done that yet. But it's coming. Because he did defeat them at the cross. You think about holding everything together, spiritually, physically. You know if the earth moved just a little bit out of its orbit in relationship to the sun, we would too close and we would burn up. Too far away, we'd just go into an ice age. We're held together here. The speed of the earth's orbit helps keep us from freezing or becoming too hot. The moon's orbit around around the earth, and there was that that movie, uh, Bruce Almighty, where, you know, he lassos the moon, and if you watch the movie, and he pulls the moon closer. Well, the next morning, what, what happened? Tsunamis all across Japan. If the moon was a little closer to the earth, then the tides would be wrong, and twice a day we'd be flooding the earth because of the wrong tides. Who holds us in place? Who created all this? The Bible says Jesus. You know, with all the other universe, everything we can find out there, this is the one that's working good. And Jesus got a plan. He's in charge. In Him, all things hold together. In Hebrews 1, it says, God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers, and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in His Son, is His deity, whom He appointed heir of all things. See, there's that firstborn heir designation in Hebrews. It says, Through whom also he, Christ, made the world. Repeating again what we just read, he created all things. And he is the radiance, this is a reading out of Hebrews, and he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. Being echoed what we just talked about. He is the image of the invisible God. And the last part of verse 3 says, And he upholds all things by the word of his power. He just speaks it, and it's held together. I mean, that's just awesome. Jesus isn't working frantically to hold these atoms together and keep us in the right orbit. The word of his power goes forth, and all things are held together. That's power. That's power. I think I'm powerful when I sit on my couch at home and say, Matthew, Bring me a glass of chocolate milk. And I think, man, I got power. Look at these guys. By the word of his mouth, everything is held together. Verse 18, Colossians. It says, He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. That's the theme of Colossians, that Christ is preeminent. Preeminent simply means the first things. That Christ is the first things. He was there at the beginning of creation because he is eternal himself. 
that in all things he may have the preeminence, but he is the head of the body, the church who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Now here we get the firstborn language again. And we need to, it's important that we, as we read this, that we're seeing that what they're doing is building layer upon layer and then repeating again. And it's a type of poetry that they would use in old ancient times and in the times of Israel to, to build on, on um, themes and to keep teaching layer by layer. And so here we're back to, he's the firstborn. He is the head of the body. He is who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. He will himself have the first place in everything. Right now, Christ's majesty and lordship is recognized by his church where Christ is the head of the body. And he reigns over his kingdom and we, his church, serve him. But at the same time, he is the head of this body. At the same time that that's happening, you know, we think about we're part of the body of Christ. He defeated darkness. He defeated the enemy. I feel like I should put on a sweater. Hi, boys and girls. Welcome to my neighborhood. Took you a minute to get there. Kind of just has that nice tone, doesn't it? You know, as part of the body of Christ, Christ being the head who was from the beginning, the creator of all things, he holds everything together. We're like, yes, this is amazing. Yet at the same time, we live in this kingdom because we're part of the kingdom of God, receiving his forgiveness, receiving the blood as a sacrifice. And that'll be the the next point. We live in this body, yet we live in a world that's full of sin, that the demonic realm is real and that the demonic realm does have power and that there are wicked things happening in high places and spiritual places so how does this work that works because the principle we've talked about before the kingdom of god which we're part of see in verse 13 it says that we were translated from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of the son of god the son he loves we we became part of the kingdom of god but that kingdom is not fully here yet it's what we, what we say, it's now, but not yet. So though we've been translated, we're not under the rule of the enemy any longer. You might feel like it, but you're not. You only are if you give the enemy authority. You've been translated out of that kingdom, yet we're still pressed on. And the enemy is still real because the kingdom, though it's now, and we walk in the power of the kingdom, we won't fully realize victory, final victory, until we're in heaven. Which It's just not going to happen. We won't walk in perfect perfection in our mortal bodies until we're in heaven. And there's some teaching that almost go to the extreme side that says you can have perfect health if you just believe and have faith. How can you be 60 or 70 years old and even have a wrinkle on your face and say that you're walking in a perfect body? Your body is decaying. Because we were never meant, we're not meant to live fully in the realm of perfection until we're there. So the kingdom of God is here and we walk in the power and we walk in the victory, yet part of the kingdom is yet to come. So he is the head over all the creation and his kingdom is now, but it's not yeah.
First Corinthians says it this way, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Hebrews 2a says, for in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him, but now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. The kingdom is now, but not quite yet. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Every tongue will confess. Not every tongue is confessing or has confessed. The kingdom is now, but not yet. The church is made up of new creations. We were created in Christ. In Christ, we're new creatures. Everyone who receives adoption by the Father, by the indwelling Holy Spirit, are members of the body of Christ. And so we are Christians. And we are called the church because we've been called out of the world, set apart. That's what the word church in the Greek means. It means the called out ones. We're called out. We're translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. So we've been called out. We need to sing this hymn in our hearts, understanding that we're joint heirs, called out. We're part of the kingdom of God. Christ is the head of the church. We're born again in him. He was the firstborn from among the dead. He had to rise again. And he had to ascend so that we could then also be born again. But finally, finally, when we leave this earth, we'll resurrect into the glorious kingdom. And I, I, I just can't imagine that. Perfection, perfect bodies, health, no tears. That's still to come. And the, the last last point here, and I'm going to ask the ushers as, as we talk, so try, try to keep paying attention to pass out the elements. They're going to pass out the elements. We're going to take communion in just a few minutes. And the sixth point goes back to verses 13 and 14 and then 21 through 23. Christ, through Christ, reconciliation for his elect people occurs. He makes us set apart without blame. And you, verse 21, says, you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he's reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. A few sentences before, in Colossians 13, 14, says the Father, the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light, He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. We talked about Christ and His preeminence and His glory. He's the head of the church, creator of all things, that which holds all things together. He's the head of all principalities and powers and governings and authorities. We've talked about Christ, but what about us? See, this we're not a part of that unless we understand salvation and here in these passages that I just read we see there's a contingency to be part of the kingdom of God 
He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. He did the work. You didn't do it. You can't do it. The first thing we need to understand is that the Father has done the work through Christ. And He conveyed us from the power of darkness to the kingdom of Jesus. In verse 14, the first word in, this, in, in verse 14 in the New King James says, In whom? In. The only way that you are qualified to share in the inheritance, because Christ is the heir of all, and we're sharing in His inheritance as if we're in Christ. You have to be in Him. You can't work for it. You can't earn it. We have to be in Christ because the Father did the work. Christ did the work and we have to be in Him. And there's another part and I don't, I'm not going to get into whether you can lose your salvation or not. I think we argue about that way too often and people just think about it too often whether you're Arminian, Calvinist in that side, eternal security or not. But in the passage we just read, 22 or 23, it says, If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature. And what, what was that? It was, If you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he's reconciled in the body of his flesh through death, to present you holy and blameless and above reproach if indeed you continue in the faith. Cannot handle a, a topic in such depth, but if you're not continuing in the faith, maybe you're not in the faith. If you're not continuing the faith, you're walking away from the Lord. We, we don't want to be those who are disqualified. We want to be presented blameless, holy, above reproach in His sight. We receive Him by faith, His sacrifice for us. But we need to continue in Him. Qualifying reconciliations based on having that saving faith in the hope of the good news. Christ, our firstborn, he inherits all the people he rescues out of the domain of darkness. Someday he'll bring all of us who called on the name of the Lord and has committed our, our lives in him in faith, receiving his sacrifice for our sins. We'll be with him and rest and be in peace forever. The work that Christ did was painful. We use the word excruciating. That word comes from the cross. Excruciating. That word was derived from what Christ did at the cross. He humbled himself and he suffered for us. And we receive that and we continue to walk. If we don't receive that, then we're all children of wrath. Someday he will transform our lowly body make it conform to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself Philippians 3 says 
Christ was the firstborn among many brothers. He's the firstborn. And in faith, you can be part of the many brothers, but not everyone is many. He didn't say all men. It's many brothers. So this morning, we see the awesomeness of Christ in all of his relations. How he relates to us as the, as the body, as he is the head. How he relates to us at creation. How he holds all things together. How he was the firstborn as heir and he's the firstborn from among the dead. Showing that we can live. Unless our faith is put in him, we're lost. This is a beautiful song that Colossians is singing. And we'll be singing that for eternity. And someday we'll sing in heaven, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You've made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. And they will reign on the earth. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. He's the firstborn heir. We are the rewards of his inheritance. Have you put your faith in him? Are you walking steadfastly in him? He did the work. We have to receive it. This morning, if you've never put your faith in him, it's, it's easy. Because he did the work. It's simple. Maybe it's not easy because we have to surrender our lives. But we say, God, we thank you that you were our sacrificial lamb, that you broke your body and your blood was spilled for us. That you, you can ask and say, God, be my Savior and my Lord. And help me to walk faithfully after you. If you've done that in the past, but you have fallen away, then it's a great time to recommit your life and say, Father, I want to be one who walks steadfastly. I want to stay in the faith. I want to continue serving you. Thank you for your forgiveness for my sin, all of my sins and my sinfulness. the rest of us, as we take communion this morning, we give thanks for the broken body of Christ. The sacrifice that was made that showed that he was God himself. That showed that he was the heir of all, the firstborn. The sacrifice that allowed him to become the firstborn from among the dead. Thank you for your body that was broken for me that I might be an heir with you. Let's partake of the, the bread together. And Lord, your blood that you spill. We thank you. For in this blood is our forgiveness of sin. Thank you for your sacrifice.
let's make it a point to have this song of Colossians echo in our hearts that Christ is the image of the invisible God and he was the firstborn over creation. That by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Thrones, dominions, principalities, powers. They were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things consist he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence, all things even in our life, he will have the first and be the first. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness would dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. We who once were alienated and enemies, we've been reconciled in the body of his flesh through death. And he's presented us holy and blameless above reproach in his sight. As we continue, I say as we continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, not moved away from the hope of the gospel. Let that song resonate that we serve Almighty Christ, powerful, majestic, glorious. Thank you for the new hymn, Lord, through Colossians this morning. Help us to trust in you as preeminent creator, Lord, Savior, creator, in Jesus' name. Might be some snacks still outside. Fellowship with one another. Talk about what Christ has done in your life. How he's translated you from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of the Son of whom he loves. Don't be in a hurry to leave. If anyone wants prayer for anything, those people who will stay and pray with you about any of your needs. God bless you.